welcome to What Editors Want. My name is Philip Connor, and this is the weekly podcast where I interview a different editor from the world of publishing to find out what it is they look for in a manuscript. So far in this series, I've been interviewing editors who work for publishers. So this week, I'm delighted that my guest is Kit Kalis, co-founder of Influx Press. Influx Press are the Hackney-based publishers behind books like Hold Tight, Black Masculinity, Millennials and The Meaning of Crime, and one of my favourite collections of recent years, Ely Williams' A Trip and Other Stories. Kit told me about starting a press from scratch and publishing books from London anthologies all the way to poetry from the Western Sahara. Stay tuned until the end for a preview of next week's episode and enjoy! Spoons Carpet, which is uh, exactly what it sounds like. Um, one of the funniest books of last year, which where you went around the country photographing every Weatherspoons carpet um, and got up to all sorts of mischief. That must have been an experience. Yeah, I put experience in inverted commas. Okay. I think, yeah. <laughs> it was pretty fun. I, I, yeah, I mean, I went to 150 pubs in five weeks. Wow. And uh, I did set myself the task of drinking in every single one. Yeah, you'd have to when you've come that So far. that included breakfast and uh, mm-hmm. stuff like that. Were so <laughs> it became kind of arduous yeah. after a while. But if you don't suffer for your art, who will? Um, <laughs> other people. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, but your day job is here at Influx Press. Yeah. And you are the co-founder. Um, and do you want to tell us a little bit about where Influx came from and what you what? people might know you for yeah the, the basic origin story is um me and uh, my school friend gary budden um i think it when was it 2011 we were living near each other in in hackney um and we were getting really tired of reading the same stuff about the borough the ian sinclair stuff mm. and and were sort of good books at the time but also uh kind of a very particular perspective uh, and the Olympics was coming, and we just we wanted to put together an anthology of local writers mm. writing about the area. Area being Hackney. Yeah, specifically. And it was called Acquired for Development by, which mm. is basically about the kind of. At the time we wrote it, we thought we were kind of late to the gentrification conversation. But it just kept rumbling and, yeah, on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we were like, oh, you know, there's an actual coffee shop here now. Yeah. And then, like, nine years later, there's like. Seven Costas or whatever. We, yeah. we were like... So this was back in 2012? Yeah, it came out in 2012 in May. Um, and we only ever intended to do one book. Mm. Uh, and we called it initially Hackney Influx, which was the title of the book. So then when we changed the title, we then decided to make the press okay. name Influx Press. Yeah. And it, it sold really well to the point where we couldn't not do another book, mm. I think. Kind of yeah, yeah. Cursed. Cursed by success. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. It's um, like what is also going to happen when you go to every Green King pub in the country. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think we started slowly. We didn't really take it seriously for four, four or five years. Until really? we wow. had maybe 10, 11 books. And then we started to really plan 
further ahead. So, so you were kind of doing a couple of books a year. Yeah. And it, was, it wasn't your kind of main job at that point? No, no, not at all. Um, I was working at a charity called Adaction who help alcohol and drug addicts uh, into recovery. Um, Gary was working as an English tutor for rich uh, Sheikh children um, <laughs> in northwest London. Uh, yeah, so it didn't, it didn't really... We got some Arts Council funding uh, in about 2014-15, and that's what set us towards being able to kind of plan more yeah. further ahead. Yeah. yeah, and how many books would you say you do a year now? Does it vary? Or? Uh, we're doing six this year, 2019. Um, I'm planning seven next year. Right. Um, I think at our level, so we've got it's me and Gary and uh, our assistant editor, Sanya Semakula, um, with three people, you can't... I don't think you can get more than ten books out a year. Mm. I think it's incredibly difficult. Yeah. And what... Um, so you're, a lot of your publishing is still very grounded in London. Yeah, um, I think so, yeah. Both in terms of content, but also, I guess, lots of the writers as well. Yeah. Uh, it's hard to do... Uh, I think we've got one writer who's based in Berlin, and he's our most expensive writer, because we have to... If we want to do an event in England, we've yeah. got to fly him over. Right, or yeah. If we're going to do a launch in Berlin, we will fly to Berlin and yeah. have to put ourselves up in hotels or whatever, yeah, I guess. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's worth it, obviously, but I think there's an ease with having a writer based in London when we're our size. And I get, like, I understand the arguments against that London waiting, as it were, but it, it, we can't operate with all our authors scattered over the place mm. because it's just <clears throat> when you're trying to do promotions and events and things like that it's just much easier to have them on hand to have them on hand yeah. yeah and also sadly easier if they want to do interviews in the media because all the media's here yeah um, but having said that regional authors as it were um, can attract more attention in their regions principally for the fact that they're slightly more novel mm that there's a big writer in Leeds or you know what I mean yes um, so it can work both ways and you guys are publishing both fiction and non-fiction yes would you say that there is uh, <laughs> something that you know what would you say defines the, a type of a, an influx book or a kit book is there something in the uh, it's funny like, our, like Gary and I I mean we're like we're kind of like a married couple really <laughs> where we've known each other for so long that it just takes one little snippet to wind each other up or yeah. uh, whatever but we also know each other like quite sort of deeply mm. in the sense of you know, I'll read a book and I'll be like ah oh, a submission and I'll think oh Gary would love this I'm not sure I quite do mm-hmm. so then I'll give it to Gary and he will love it and, and vice versa um, but in order to publish our work and the books we, we choose we both have to either agree that we love it or the other person gets like one forced book a year yeah, to yeah. push through. The blue ticket. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. And um, so let's talk about some of your books. Mm. Um, the first one I've got in front of me, um, which anyone who's listening to this podcast is probably bored of hearing about because <laughs> I rabbit on about it all the time, is uh, A Trib and Other Stories. Mm. Um, and A Trib is one of those books that seems to have a little cult around it in that when you meet anyone else who's read it and loved it, mm. you kind of immediately have to talk about it and light up. It's, it seems, it, it's just such a 
charming book. Um, yeah, it's a bit like being a fan of Emmanuel Petit in the <laughs> Arsenal years, sort of 98 to 2002, I think. The ponytail. Yeah, you, there's a certain type of Arsenal fan who really likes talking about That was about the glory, team. yeah. <laughs> um, but where did the book come from? The, where, how did you come to... Ah, uh, yeah, this is probably our most famous uh, acquisition, I think. Um, not just because the book did so well, but... Um, Sadly, I have to give Gary credit for this, uh, <laughs> even though I edited the book. Uh, so he was at an event where Ellie read one of the stories from, I mean, I say from the book, but you'll understand why that's a contentious thing to say in a minute. Uh, she was reading a short story, and he was also doing some part-time editing at Ambit. Have you know Ambit magazine? Uh, no, I don't. Uh, originally, I think, founded by... A guy called Martin Bax and J.G. Ballard used to edit it. Oh, right. It's like a short story, come poetry okay. journal, I suppose. Uh, I think it's quarterly. Um, and it, Gary was doing some editing there, and she'd sent in a, in a story. And he, then he saw her read, and he just said to me, I think we need to a- ask if she's got a book. Mm-hmm. So we asked if she had a book, and she didn't have a book. So we said, do you want to write a book? Mm. And then she said okay <laughs> and then three years later this book came out and um, as far three as I'm three years wow huh? three, three years, years yes yeah. um, she's um, um, meticulous right sure but I, but I guess I'll put, um, through the course of my doing lots of these mm. interviews especially with the people in bigger houses you know they're very much dealing in the finished product mm. um, and of course that they're uh, in lots of cases they're doing lots of editing but mm. in some cases not so it's really interesting to hear that you guys are kind of were in way before there was kind of even a well yeah because in, in this respect um, we because there's no agent involved um, also that we we commissioned her directly we just said we whatever you write we will publish it okay um, and then she sort of, there's like I think there's 10 stories in the book uh, and they trickled in over time mm. as she wrote them and, uh, you know, we knew we had something really special because mm. she's an incredibly special writer. But we were there at the beginning because there wasn't an agent around. There wasn't a book didn't exist. So it's not the same as having a submission from an agent who says, here's a book I've already approved of. Yes. Like, and and I've sent it to 10 other people. Yeah, exactly. So we're, you know, we knew we had the book, as it were. Yeah. So it could take as long as it wanted mm. to come out. Um, and in that time that Ellie was writing it and that we were working on it she was also she got shortlisted for the White Review short story prize twice and then um, a couple of other things I can't remember which started to raise her profile sure. so by the time we had sort of advanced copies of the book ready there were lots and lots of people who wanted to read her work because yeah. they'd seen some of it already Yeah, and that really helped I bet <laughs> um, but like that's it I've always say that to writers um, it's like, how do we know you're there unless you make yourself available? Mm. So Ellie got up on stage and read out a story. Gary and I happened to be in the audience. Mm. Um, that is a fairly unique way of getting commissioned, but unless Ellie hadn't, if she hadn't stood up and read something out, yeah, um, could have taken her another two or three years before anybody picked her up. Or yeah, and I guess she would have been going through that whole process with. The, the not knowing of if there was going to be a book, if someone was going to be interested. It's yeah, a very it, different experience, I think, having someone... Back to you before the, the book. Yeah. <laughs> but I think also, yeah. you know, for lots of writers, to have someone to send a story to when you mm. finished it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think that's definitely part of it. There's also that... Um, 
at the time I mean I th- people talk about this book changing how people view short stories mm. um, as commercial uh, viably commercial products I think it was something like in the year that that came out Tom Hanks was like number one short story collection yeah. and then there was like maybe one other and then it was Ellie's book and it's, it's sort of it was all it kept getting mentioned in this short story boom and all that sort of stuff mm. um, and we have been publishing short stories for ages and we just happened, it just happened that this one blew up um, because it's great, but also we've got other short story collections that are great. And it's that thing in publishing where you never know which one's going to go. Yeah, it's, yeah, and it seems so obvious in retrospect yeah. or for anyone outside the business, yeah. but it's absolutely not. No, I mean, we printed 500 copies to wow. start with because uh, we had no we had no idea what was going to happen. Yeah, to it. and what did happen to it was winner of James Tate Black Prize. Um, you guys jointly won Republic of Consciousness Prize, which yeah. is the only prize, I think, that is awarded to both the publisher and the author. Correct, yeah. Also, long-listed for Dylan Thomas, New Statesman, Telegraph, Guardian, White Review, Australian Book Review, all books of the year. Yeah, yeah. So, it, it, you know, it was not a, <laughs> a 500 copies. No, it's definitely, no, definitely not. Um, it's the gift that still keeps giving. Um, but, yeah, those those other things are really good examples. The James Tate Black as well, from a publisher's perspective at our level. Mm. I send that in on a whim because it, there's not a lot of prizes that include short story collections. Yeah. So the Booker doesn't include it, the Goldsmiths, Babies, yeah. all and that. And you have this weird thing where sometimes publishers will pretend the collection of short stories yeah. is... is you and, know. It, and it's not a novel, you know, and yeah. everyone knows it. Um, and I sent it to them just on a whim and then they got back to me and said it was shortlisted. And I was like, oh, great. And then they invited Ellie up to Edinburgh Book Festival for the event. And, and then she phones me and it's like, yeah, we, we won. <laughs> <laughs> I remember just being like, James Tate, yeah, okay, that one takes it. And just yeah. putting it in an envelope and sending it off. And, mm. you know, you've got to be in it to win it. I yeah. That's the, the thing. Um, and it is like, in terms of, you spoke a little bit about as the stories come in, editing them. Like, how was, what was the experience of that? Because it is such a playful book with mm. such a kind of, interesting and unique approach to language uh yeah i had a dictionary to hand i i bet (laughs) (laughs) um and then a lot of the time you know you i think people talk about imposter syndrome and Mm. i shouldn't be here i was sitting there going am i even qualified to edit this yeah you know it's one of those weird jobs isn't it where there you know of course you can do a copy editing course or Mm. something but you're never there's never really a kind of test you have to pass that suddenly you get to do it. No, I don't think you can. We, I mean, we've learned, Gary and I both have learned it um, as we've gone along. I think sure. I've become a better editor and I can see the book's shape a little bit better yeah. than I used to be able to. Um, but with Ellie's work, it came... It was more a question of which stories to keep in uh, and um, which stories I wanted lengthened. Or mm. there, So there was one called Sinister synesthesia which I can't say very well it's about the character who sees colours related to words and and that was really short yeah uh, maybe it was a page and a half oh, and really? I was like I really want this to be a lot longer yeah that's so, the story I remember that sticks with me the most mm. um, and you know she tries to find someone who doesn't evoke yeah, these yeah, <laughs> you know yeah. she's almost looking for the blandest man yeah, in the world exactly, which is yeah. just and she's seen this shrink and, and yeah and so the, the shrink is a completely new element to the mm. story and it's that sort of stuff where editing isn't isn't subtraction all the time. It's actually asking for mm. more. Yeah, and you, you know? kind of also, you have that responsibility of being the first or mm. most serious reader of something. Mm. Um, 
and you know it can be really hard to ask for more of something but in this he kind of ne- I guess it needed it I think so um, we've got another book coming uh, in July called Plastic Emotions which is by a great writer called Sharomi Pinto and her her initial submission um, the first manuscript first draft or whatever it wasn't the first draft she had written but the first draft I got was like 130,000 wow words or something and I've Consequently, I've got it down to 105. Right. Um, but I'm like looking at a couple of books I've got in front of me here. I'm guessing these are kind of in the 50,000 range yeah, or something. Yeah, so yeah. my Twice. comfort space <laughs> for books is around about 50 to 70. Right? Yeah. Like, and so this is quite, quite a big... So that was a new experience for me as an editor. Um, so I went from asking Ellie to put more words in mm-hmm. to asking the next writer to chop four characters out of the book and wow. you know all that sort of stuff so I think it's each book is you have to treat it completely individually mm. as its own thing and, and maybe in, in a more commercial publisher where they have a much more sort of template formulate way of constructing a book you know like you have kind of strong crime thrillers which follow a particular pattern sure you they're can, roughly 350 pages or, you can yeah. train an editor into that yeah, I think yeah. um, but in terms of sort of literary fiction uh, which is not a term I like using but um, stuff that isn't necessarily fitting in a particular generic mm-hmm. space I think it's a lot harder you have to use your instinct a lot more and your gut feeling and, mm. and sometimes you get it wrong and sometimes you get it right and from a very long book to a book made up of very short things um, <laughs> How the Light Gets In Claire mm. Fisher so this is you know I guess in keeping with you know it makes total sense to have this beside Edie Williams on your shelf yeah um, but it is, I don't know how many, maybe a hundred and seventy-five, uh, you know, page or two-page mm. stories. Mm. Um, did that come from a similar? Do, can you give Gary credit for that one as well? <laughs> do you know what? I can as well. <laughs> you pick the books. <laughs> it's, it's funny we have this uh, this uh, thing where yeah. like Gary tends to put the pick the books that I want to edit. I so see. Okay. Like, actually, I want to edit, but the, the, this one came from so Claire. This has also been longlisted for the Dylan Thomas Prize. Um, mm. which came out last month. Hoping it gets shortlisted, which would be great. Um, Claire sent us this um, off. Normally, our submissions window is closed. We can come to that later. But um, Claire just sent it in on spec. We didn't know who she was. Mm. Uh, Gary read it and said, "This is quite good." And then I read it and I was like, "Oh yeah, this is quite good." And then we met Claire and, she, and we were like. We'd really like to do this. Yeah. So he said, oh, great. Um, and then we kind of faffed around a bit. I can't remember why. <laughs> One of us went on a holiday or something. I, it doesn't, I can't really remember. And we didn't give her a contract for a bit. Um, and then she signed her novel with... Um, Viking. Viking. So then we were like, ah. Oh. But, we, but then they, they didn't necessarily want to do a short story collection yeah. because that's not sort of what they do. And Claire was still keen for us to do the short story collection with her. Sure, but you didn't want the books coming out within a month. Yeah, so then, this is a while back, because this book finish, was finished in 2015. Right. Um, so we've been sitting on it for three years, wow. because Viking said that they wanted to do her novel first as the debut, and then we can come after. And it made sense, actually, like the, they build the audience and, and that sort of stuff. But it was kind of an example of... I guess us not really knowing what we were doing because if we had signed the short story collection immediately, like off the contract straight away and got it done, mm. we would have had a much better. We'd have been in a much better position to then say, "No, actually, 
we, we signed this first, so it's yeah. going to come out first. Yeah. Or compensate us, or you know what I whatever. Mean? Yeah. So there's yeah. that. Now it's like, oh, you you want to do the book with us? Okay, here's a contract. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, just fire it off straight. But away. I guess that is one of those things that you, yeah. you definitely learn, especially. Mm. I mean, I, I certainly learned it when I joined Unbound. You know, it was like I was like employee number eight or something. Yeah. <laughs> it was like absolutely having to make those mistakes in order to not make them again yeah 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 definitely and it, you know you don't suffer for it necessarily but um, you do if you don't if you don't notice their mistakes mm. I think that's when you get in trouble yeah um, you know we could have been like oh that's just the way it is sure you know and then f- five years later do it when, when it matters more. yeah exactly uh, you mentioned briefly submission window so how, how often does that open and close and how long does it last for you? Well, I mean, I'm sure it varies depending it on what you need vary. and how many books you're doing. It does vary. We, so, uh, you know, the, any, for example, like, you know, there's times where we'll go out to an author and just say, do you want to do a book with us? Yeah. Um, and there are other times when the author might come through us via an agent or someone we know um, or trust. Not, I kind of want to state quite clearly, not in an old boys network sort of way. Like, yeah. Because of our approach to publishing, like we, Gary and I were never in publishing mm. to start with. So we've kind of always been on the outside. And we have, the networks we've made are not necessarily within that kind of inner publishing circle. So a lot of the stuff that gets sent to us actually comes from people we know who might know a writer and they don't know how to access a publisher. Yep. And so we get it that way. So one of those books um, called Hold Tight by Jeffrey Boyacci, which is about grime, kind of a... A journey through grime music and black masculinity. Yeah, it's got like the best subtitle I've seen in ages. So it's whole type black masculinity, millennials, and the meaning of grime, which I love. Yeah, that's me. Yeah, well done. <laughs> <laughs> Take um, credit for something. Yeah, finally. I will do finally. I mean, that is a great book, and, and Jeffrey's gone on to sign with Little Brown, and he's got a new book coming out in April, which is going to be really big. But that came through. He's a teacher, and he works with a friend of mine who's also a teacher, mm. and. My friend was like, Jeffrey's sort of got a book he wants to write. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I'll meet him. And I met Jeffrey, we got on really well. And then he proposed the book, and I was like, I'm done. So here's a contract. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've learned my lesson from signing this contract yeah, immediately. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, but that, that's the kind of thing where we're very open to that. And that's why we can find writers like Jeffrey who aren't going through the normal systems. Yeah. You know? um, anyway, to go back to the Windows thing. We have a general submissions window once every two years, uh, which is generally a January or a February, um, um, where anybody can send us anything. Um, outside of that, it's generally closed unless you're an agent. And even then, um, I'll, most of the time, I'll write back to the agent and just say, I don't have time to read. Mm. It's like I literally can't give you an answer until seven months' time or, yeah. or whatever. Um, so we had a submissions window open just this January just gone and we got around about 500 wow which we try and read at least the first page of each one yeah. uh, you know um, some you can tell straight away some they might be from writers that you already like sure. um, others what, are completely random and what because um, I know you know if you go to one of these or if you talk to someone about getting advice on getting mm. published for instance you know there's a lot of concentration on the cover letter or mm. on how, what do you think does, it, does any of that matter to you like I, I spoke to Mark Richards recently mm. from John Murray and mm. he said I don't read the cover letters I just go, I just open the manuscript and start reading it because I think it it's purer and I appreciate that but again if you've does got he fun, get does he get 
unsolicited uh, submissions. No. So he gets them from agents. Yeah. Oh, well, I wouldn't read an agent's covering that. Oh, interesting. Um, but if it's coming from someone without an agent, yeah. Uh, <laughs> because I have to make quite quick decisions because got, we've got to read 500 books mm. and we've also got to get back to people within a reasonable amount of time. Yeah. Uh, you, know, you can't leave it seven months and then yeah. say, oh, sorry, I forgot. We haven't taken oh, it. Yeah. Or we would like to. Either. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Same one. So like the first thing is if the cover letter doesn't, isn't addressed to me or Gary, mm. then I'm not going to read it. Mm. If it just says, dear sirs or... Dear influx. It's very... On the submissions call out, it says, Gary and Kit... Uh, no, no, no. You know, so it's not hard to read. Yeah, and that. do you do you have guidelines in terms of? I mean, people do get a bit hung up on fonts and space. We have guidelines things. because people ask that question, yeah. so they're always writing. What which font would you like? Here? Yeah, yeah. So we're just like, just look at the guidelines. Yeah, yeah. And the thing is, if you can't read the guidelines properly, why should I read your book properly? Yeah, that's how the relation. Why might? Why should I take your work seriously if you don't take my work seriously? Sure. Enough? Um, so it's not a, it's not about needing it to be in Times New Roman. It's no. about that kind of have you done your homework? Are you just sending this out as widely as possible? Exactly. Like, do you actually want me and influx too? Exactly. And um, one of the the things that will get me on side. It, basically, I'm looking for any reason to say no mm. because there's so much work. Because you've got 500 books and you might take two of them. Yeah, yeah. if that, maybe three. I think this this time round, but. Um, it's basically, I want to know why you want me specifically to publish it. So I want you to say, I loved Ellie Williams's book. I heard you on that great podcast. Yeah, all that sort of stuff. You sounded so friendly. Um, uh, to make me feel like you want to work in relationship with us. Um, otherwise, it's just, I know it's being sent to each and every publisher everywhere. Mm. And if you, with small presses, you have to want to be part of the list of the sort of family of writers that we... I mean, our, our writers are super varied, you know, from a book on masculinity and grime by a guy who grew up in Brixton to a short story collection, uh, which is, like, basically a swallowing a dictionary by, um, <laughs> you know, uh, a Cambridge graduate. You know, sure. They're very, very different spaces, but there's, a, there's an attitude to wanting to produce something that's different yeah. in each book, I think. Mm. Um or, or not necessarily a mainstream or perceived to be mainstream yeah. way of writing. And um, I'm going to bring you on to the next book we're going to talk about, which is An Unreliable Guide to London, mm. uh, which is, you've done quite a few London anthologies. Yeah. Uh, but again, they kind of sit outside that, yeah, Ian Sinclair, I mean, I don't yeah. want to victimize no, Ian Sinclair, no, no, but he is, he is symbolic of a certain way to write yeah. about London and place yeah. that became popular and very successful at a certain time and this is slightly different it is different i think i think with ian um i might i think when when penguin publishing sinclair's books they know the exact number they need to publish right they're like right we're going to print 4332 yeah because he has that's his he has a really strong readership yes but i don't think he necessarily is bothered about building any more on it mm. which is fine so he writes what he writes for his audience uh, with the unreliable guy to London, it was it's a it's a fiction anthology, um, but it's about all the spaces that people don't write about. So, Acton, North, you know, like Staples Corner in in Wilsdon. Uh, what are the other ones like South Clapham? I've got a horse-sized swan here. Yeah, in Brent. Yeah, <laughs> and um, sort of uh, there's 
monks going mad in an abbey and barking and, and all this sort of stuff. And so are they based on you know real places, real events, real things? Based on real places. Um, some of them feel like they're real events. Others yeah. are quite sort of uh, incredibly imaginative. But the, the important thing for me for that was... So with the Hackney book that we did when we first started, um, we, we had a number of black writers in it, um, but we didn't cover quite the the rest of the sort of diaspora in Hackney well enough, I felt. Um, so we didn't have a Turkish writer, for example, and we didn't have a Vietnamese writer, which are real strong communities in Hackney. So for this one, I was really adamant that we were going to really cover the sort of length and breadth of the ethnicities and, and communities in London. So the list of, the sort of writer's list, well, I'm really proud of. The anthologies are, are funny, though, because anthology is another one a bit like short stories, for yeah. instance, which people are consider them to not be particularly financially viable. And then a good immigrant happened. Yeah. And boom. Off yes, you went. exactly. Yeah. I mean, The Umbrella Abba in London has only sold about a thousand copies, and it's one of my favourite books I've ever published. Um, and I think The Good Immigrant changed the landscape somewhat in terms of what's possible, but I do think that it's easier to do a non-fiction anthology than it is to do a fiction anthology because mm. you can make it about an issue or a subject matter or, yeah. or whatever and having a book about a place is fine but I think people react to fiction in a more emotive or uh, instinctive way where they might not like the style of the writing or mm. they might not like the character inside so when you read a fiction anthology it's going to be for every reader they're going to like not like three or four of the stories mm. whereas I feel like with a, an essay anthology you're still getting something out of each essay. Sure. You know, and it's usually going to be a unifying editor or a yeah, theme exactly. or whatever. So like The Good Immigrant with, with Nikesh's vision was going to be like that. Yeah. And someone else doing The Good Immigrant, yeah. it might have been a different book. But, you know. Because mm. I guess one of the, like, it's bizarrely one of the challenges when you're publishing a non-fiction anthology is to prevent it being monotonous. Mm, when you're asking point, lots yeah. of people react to the same yeah. thing, you don't want... Uh, so I published a book about the repeal of the eighth movement in Ireland, oh, right. um, and Una Mullally, who edited it, just did an extraordinary job of making sure that uh, this was looked at from every which way, from every which type of people, Irish and not Irish, mm. and male and women, and there was a screenplay and a poem and a piece of nonfiction. But again, she brought that, uh, what would you say? spectrum of responses to it in a much more interesting way that made it book whereas with fiction you're actually fighting the other way which is you've probably got a spectrum of things and you need to unify it somewhat yeah no I I agree actually you need to find a way of of bringing those perspectives together but again that entirely depends on the editor and like you know someone like Nikesh who's edited when he edited The Good Immigrant he's got a vision of what that book should be I had a kind of vision of what An Unreliable Guide to London would be but I also was thinking about employing someone else to do the editing. So someone who's not white, mm. who's um, you know editor of colour, who has experienced London in a very different way to how I have, they would potentially have produced a different mm. anthology. And it, they would equally be valid, but they might be different. They might also be the same. But I think with the sort of issue-led anthologies like The Good Immigrant... Um, and uh, uh, the common people one, you know, you, the editor is needs to have had the lived experience of what's happening in that yeah. anthology. You know, yeah. I mean, that was certainly my like. I 
I, I when I wanted to do the repeal anthology, I knew I couldn't do it. Mm. Like I was just wouldn't have had the lived experience mm. or anything close to it to be able to do it. So it was totally vital. You know that book would never have existed, let alone even in a lesser form. Without, right. You know, yeah, like yeah. she was the crucial to it. Yeah. Um, that kind of slightly ties in with the next book I want to talk about, which is Settled Wanderers, mm. which is a book of poetry, but is also very. Uh, you know, I think it was shaped by the people who made it. Yeah, I'm super proud of that book. Uh, still currently the only book of Western Saharan poetry in translation. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, so Western Sahara is uh, occupied. I mean, I'll get into political trouble if I say too much, but um, <laughs> uh, it's an occupied territory uh, in South Morocco, which used to be called Western Sahara, um, and now it's Morocco. But there's... Uh, a war between the um, Sahwari, as they're called, and the Moroccans and the Mauritanians. And then the Sahwari became refugees and ended up in Algeria and have been in a refugee camp. Whilst some of them are still under occupation in Morocco, the others are in this refugee camp and they've been there for like 40 years. Wow. Longest running refugee camp in the world. Wow. Um, the part in Morocco has a wall entirely around it, and much like Palestine. Um, and it's completely unspoken of. Uh, conflict. I learned about it through researching yeah. this book before today. Right, so Sam, who's English, uh, he is a poet and he was sent, he went with uh, an arts group to the Western Sahara to do poetry workshops with the Sahwaris in their refugee camps. And then he came back having met loads of poets, who uh, old poets, who had, who lived in these camps and would just recite poetry as kind of entertainment for people because there's obviously not a lot to do in a refugee camp. And he came back and he, he, he said to me, like, I really want to do this book. I want to get their poems mm. and translate them and then publish them in English. And I was like, this is the best idea I've heard this year. So, yeah, let's do it. Um, and so he then, his translator, who he worked with when he was doing the poetry workshops, then became the translator for... Sam, so what we needed to do, we needed to get Sam back out there, we needed to pay Mohammed, who's a translator, and then we needed to find someone who can understand Arabic script as well. Um, so, so the book is in three parts. The first part is the, poet- the Western Saharan poetry in translation in English. Second part is Sam's poems about the the place and then the third part is those same poems in the front of the book but in Arabic so you can read in Arabic and you can read in English and I wasn't going to try and pretend I can edit Arabic so I needed someone else on board so we had to crowdfund that um, using Kickstarter to sending Sam out to the Western Sahara is incredibly difficult Mm -hmm. because you have to get five different planes and then get in a jeep for five hours and uh, all sort of stuff um and we also wanted to pay the poets there, so we wanted Sam to take money with him, mm-hmm. um, all that sort of stuff. And the result of that book is that the poets, they never had their poems written down, they're all oral, so it's a complete oral culture. Um, and the dialect, uh, Hassaniya, is a particular dialect of Arabic that has never been written down. So Mohammed, who speaks Hassaniya and Arabic and English, uh, wrote, would listen to the poems, write them down, transliterate them into Arabic, um, and then translate them for Sam, 
in in the same space the poets are and then sam would look at the poem and be and then ask questions and say okay well what what rock is this that you're talking about? What is this space? And then mm. they would argue for hours and hours and hours <laughs> about what the meaning of this was. And there's other people in the room going, no, no, it's not that rock. You mean the one by the the bit of the, where the goat herd is or, or whatever? Um, because none of them can remember the old country because mm. they haven't been there for 40 years and half of the poems are about the old country. Mm. So they're arguing over their memories while Sam's kind of trying to create these like trying to get the poem as correct as possible but maintain the poetic form yeah, in English yeah. you know a very moving book and um, something I'm quite proud of but yeah I think that's a complete collaboration which is why it's by Mohammed Suleiman and Sam Bergson although Mohammed didn't do any of the refinement of the work he did the initial translations mm. and without him there'd be and he's must be one of the few people in the world who was would have been able to do that yeah it's funny because i get people get in contact with me nowadays and like oh, i want to do a project with uh, the western saharans i said do you know any translators and i'll be like muhammad and they're like oh yeah muhammad's on one we we know and i'm like, like okay so i think there he is one guy. Guy. <laughs> he's the guy yeah <laughs> Um, and you mentioned a little bit about crowdfunding for this book mm. in particular. That's something you've done a few times, and you also yeah. you also use Patreon as yeah. well. And I yeah. was wondering, actually, I've got your little card you sent me when you sent me out. Oh, <laughs> but um, you know, that's obviously working on bound something I'm really interested mm. in. Um, and you know, there's lots of people doing very interesting things, mm. whether it is you know the White Review expanding, yeah. or whether it's someone like Peninsula Press just yeah. starting. I mean, I personally am really enthused by that moving because mm. it feels to me that you can uh, make something without selling it to someone, that you can do it from personal contacts or general interest or whatever. And it, I don't know, it really gives me kind of quite a lot of hope about how mm. um, books and indeed publishers will come into being in the future. How does it fit in the Influx story? When was the first time you did it? I mean, that, that one was the first, I think... We started with, we borrowed 800 quid off a neighbour of mine. Um, we paid it back quite quickly, thankfully, once the first set of the Hackney book sold. But um, we didn't have a penny between us when we started. So we just borrowed this 800 pound and uh, everybody wrote for free. And, and, you know, very sort of classic story of exploitation. But um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm now riding the coattail. Yes. Uh, yeah, and so and initially crowdfunding... I guess it wasn't really a thing then. I'm not sure. Maybe I, I think Unbound probably started around about the same time. Yeah, we were like 2011. So. Yeah, so it wasn't it wasn't really on our radar. I yeah. think Unbound is probably the, the first to really make it work. And certainly Kickstarter didn't exist. It was um, Indiegogo was the only one that was present. Yeah. Um, so the first one was for Sam's book, and then it, you know we set we just needed the money that we needed to send them out there and to pay people. So we just set it at 1,200 quid. Yeah, and you were like, if we get it, we can do it. If we don't, we can't. It's exactly. As as so that. there's like a kind of jeopardy going on. Yeah, absolutely. In that, right? Yeah. Which uh, really worked because suddenly, you know, we made that target in about two days or something. Sure. And then we thought, should have put the target high. Yeah. <laughs> but you never know. But you That's never know. a kind of, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a bit like that thing you mentioned earlier of you never know how many copies to print yeah, down. Yeah, yeah. Like we do, you know, projects every week. Mm. Things we think are going to be great turn mm. out not to be, and vice versa. Mm. Um, and it's the kind of joy of it. It's a, bit, you know, it's very like selling books, but it's much, it's quite immediate. Yeah. In the sense, you see it ticking along. You yeah. don't have to wait to get a report of how many copies you've sold. You can tell when it's going to work. So we did um, the second one. We did 
was for the unreliable guide to London because I had to pay all the writers up front and they were all <laughs> by that point I was you know we didn't pay any of our writers in the Hackney anthology which uh, people were quite willing to give up their time but by the time the uh, the London the unreliable book came out yeah we were a proper publisher yeah. so we couldn't get you know and I wasn't willing to obviously ask people to do it for free but sure. we didn't have the capital yeah just to raise so we need to get four grand we raised that pretty quickly partly because there's 20 authors all saying yes back this project please. yeah helps yeah and then the third one we did was a general kind of expand yeah thing it was very ron seal it was like make influx bigger and better yeah which is you know you can do a lot worse than being yeah, really thanks. clear about yeah, what you're yeah, trying yeah. to do um and that that was 15 grand and that that was basically again like i don't think i think there's some crowdfunding where the person can't see what the reward is. Yeah. Um, but with ours, it's always pay £10, get a book. Pay £20, get two books. Pay £30, get three. Very straightforward. Very straightforward. And you get an obvious reward. And then we put a couple of ridiculous ones up. And then someone might chuck some money at it. Fine. Yeah. But I'm, I'm really conscious of the fact that I don't want it to seem like we're getting money for nothing. Mm. You know? So it's almost like a pre-ordering the book. Yeah. In a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a, a Much like the Unbound way of doing it. Um, and then since I think people can see the impact of that so we did that before Eddie's book um, and then we have actually got bigger and better yeah uh, you know so it's it's that, clear that there's a journey yeah I went to the Patreon conference mm. it was in LA last right. year super fun but it was really interesting um, people's experience of it because one of the kind of nice things about crowdfunding something is it feels a little bit behind the scenesy. Mm. Uh and they were saying things like, um, you know, I think just transparency is absolutely vital. What mm. are you trying to do? What are you going to do with my money? Mm. Uh, and someone said that they were earning quite a lot of money through it. It was for a YouTube series, a science show mm. that they did kind of three times a week or something. And they were feeling a little bit uh, weird about showing that they were getting that much money per month. Mm. Just in that kind of way you would, it felt a bit obnoxious mm. or something because they were being really successful. So they decided to hide it, which Patreon will let you do, and just show how many people support it. Mm. And immediately they lost something like 10 or 15%. Wow. Because they felt like people really felt like, I, you know, if, it's a little bit shady, but it kind yeah. of came from not a shady place. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. it's kind of that like, tell me what your challenges are, and then I will help you get mm. over them. Mm. Yeah, it's kind of a really interesting mindset to get in. It's kind of inclusive and collective. And yeah, I think so. Our Patreon, which I set up last year, was sort of supposed to be like a, a subscription model plus. Mm. Really. So you have different levels in which you can subscribe or become a patron. Um, the top level is like ten pound a month, and you get whatever books we publish. Yeah. Um, and then the next one is like five pound a month you get four of our books and then there's one which you get one book and that's like one pound a month for the year which makes 12 pounds which basically makes a book yeah um but also each year each year each month um we publish a short story for free um anybody who's our patron can read Mm -hmm. that so there's constant content each month um and it works to a certain extent i think we have some very loyal patrons who are like really every time something comes out oh this is great thanks Mm. for this great short story this time other people uh, have obviously 
decide to sign up and don't really care whether they get anything because they've. I have to. I have to email people and say what books do you want, mm-hmm. and they're like, ah, whatever. Yeah. You know. So they just want to support us. Yeah, which, which is, is lovely, but maybe unhelpful if you want to send them something. Yeah. Uh, and then there's another section which you know some people sign up and then they drop off about four months later and they're like, oh, it's not quite what I thought it was. And then oh, that's like, what did you think it was? And they're like, well, I thought I would get a book a month, and I'm like, but that's not what it says in the yeah, thing yeah, yeah, but yeah. I think maybe because there's a post every month like a, 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 a something to read like a short story they yeah. assume that they're also going to get something yeah, yeah. in the post sure, sure. as it were um, so it's a bit of kind of education and yeah, it's funny. people it's, getting their head around it which we certainly find that Unbound is we, you, you have to explain yourself constantly which is yeah and it's quite an emotional involvement very um, much so on, on my, I'm quite emotionally involved and the, Gary doesn't do any of it because Gary's a cold hearted <laughs> man but um, you know I, I feel really responsible for people's happiness on that Patreon mm. thing because I feel like you've signed up with expectations and I need to communicate with you constantly I need mm-hmm. to be like right this is coming up now how are you did you get your book what yeah, was it yeah, like? yeah, you know? yeah. Um, you have a responsibility to your yeah. patrons you know? yeah and I think I think I might stop it mm. um, I think we're going to do a year and then I'm going to sort of take stock and I think possibly make it more simple where you so it, we, maybe we don't do it through Patreon maybe we just do it on our website where you just if you want four books a year pay us 50 quid up front yeah and people do that quite successfully like Fitzcarraldo did yeah, quite really well yeah. I subscribe to Pyrene do you know yeah, Pyrene, 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 yeah, Pyrene. Yeah. Yeah. and again like I get a direct debit once mm. a year and then they send me three books in the post that year yeah. which kind of works quite well um, and I think it's probably a little bit less admin there, it is less admin although I do like the reason why I did the Patreon is because I wanted it to be affordable and so people could pay one pound a month yeah and they can spread the cost of the books over, over, a, year. over a year whereas yeah. if 50 quid's coming out of your account as yeah. a direct debit sometimes it might not be the right month mm. you know and you're, sure. you're struggling for something and so I wanted it to be a more I guess inclusive space for people who can't afford mm. to just fork out 50 quid on books yeah. and that's worked the people who are on the one pound a month thing love it yeah. the, it's the people in the in-betweens where they're like I'm not quite sure what the value is and sure. you know yeah. it's, it's something I'm as with everything like we've been talking about it's it's a question of working out what works yeah. you know and you try it and if it doesn't work you rein it back in and you try something else and mm. you know all that sort of stuff great well thank you very much Kit I've got one question to end on mm-hmm. which is these are loads of books you have published mm-hmm. have you got something of recent times that you've wished you'd published um, yeah there's a couple of books there's two I always give two actually I've, I'm going to ask this question one is um, Grief is a Thing with Feathers yeah, by Max Porter um which is just an astonishing book uh, but also something I was annoyed by because he's an editor he was an editor like me and then he wrote this book and I was like ah oh, it's just better than Spoon's Carpet <laughs> <laughs> you know far more intelligent and emotional Spoon's yeah. Carpet is a thing with feathers you know well, coming yeah. next year yeah a thing with threads or something I don't know <laughs> um, and the other is a book called Speak Gigantula by Renaissance Nakoji mm-hmm. um who is published by Jacaranda, who I mentioned earlier, uh, Valerie. Um, great press. Um, they did a really good job on it, but it's just... Uh, yeah, I think it's probably the best short story collection I've read in 10 years. Wow. Um, she's an incredibly gifted writer, and it was one of those books, when I read it, I was like, oh, man, this is like perfect for the sort of thing that I would want to publish. Mm. Uh, and, and, you know, 
I, I have good relationships with Jacaranda and I love them so I'm really happy they published it but it's definitely one of those things where as an editor you read a book and you're like oh that fits my list yeah. you know and, and every, you know people's lists are always going to kind of cross over and, and whatever but she certainly has um, a very good career ahead of her Join me next week when my guest will be Susanna Osher from Quadrill. Susanna has worked with authors like Mel B and Simon Amstel. And if you've ever dreamed of writing a cookbook, Susanna will be telling us about the work that goes into publishing cookbooks like Carbs by Laura Goodman and the Quality Chop Houses cookbook. If you want to stay in touch with the show, you can find us on Twitter or via email. It's whateditorswantpod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.